Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today on my program, I'm interviewing Gilbert Kimang. Gilbert is a teacher and an evangelist in the church in Lagos, Nigeria. He has an extremely interesting conversion story. He contracted cancer in his early 20s while he was a foreign exchange student in Berlin, Germany. He was reached out to by a disciple in the Berlin church. He became a Christian while he's getting treated for cancer. He returned to Africa, became a teacher and an evangelist, has led churches all over Eastern Africa, and now he leads a traveling teaching ministry where he visits 10 to 15 countries and churches every single year. Gilbert, it's great to have you on the show today. It's such a joy. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You know, just reading your bi- biography, I, I get tired. I go, I don't know how you keep up with your schedule. That's, that's, I, I'm worn out just reading that. That's crazy. Now, I warned it myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Gilbert, you became a Christian in a hospital. Now, can you tell me about your conversion? You're right. So as you read uh, through my profile, talking about my time in Germany, born in Cameroon, had a scholarship. So I was studying in Germany, spent some time learning the language in the south of uh, Germany, and then ended up in Berlin for uh, university studies. So um, in the midst of a winter semester exams, I just realized that I was really very tired. I couldn't spend the hours reading and studying like I normally would do. And so long story short, got hospitalized. I was diagnosed with cancer and ended up spending, I was uh, hospitalized in February, 1992. Um, and, I, and I spent that whole year, the rest of the year, uh, I came out in December, but in between uh, the chemotherapy treatment and all that I was going through, uh, I turned 21 in hospital. So mm. that young, full of dreams, uh, I just realized that uh, I was, I mean, I was wrestling for life. And wow. uh, uh, I increasingly understood the gravity of the treatment when I had to go through chemotherapy. And so I remember just asking some very, I grew up kind of in a religious home from a Catholic background. Right. Uh, so church going was the normal thing to do. But when I, when, I, when I was faced with this health crisis in my life, it was no more about religiosity. It was now about just finding answers for some deeper questions. Mm. So uh, why am I here? I mean, what's my purpose in life? And if I'm going to have to die from this illness, which is... Uh, a general likelihood when you're diagnosed with cancer. Mm. I had cancer in my bone marrow, oh in my, my kidney, gosh. and in my liver. Oh, gosh. So the question was, if I die, what happens to me? Where am I going to? Mm. And so faced with all this deep, I'll call them existential kind of questions, uh, I found myself really looking for deep answers beyond church going and religiosity. And in that process, I, I, I started engaging a bit more with reading the Bible and reading different spiritual books, uh, 
when I found some strength in the hospital. But the most, uh, um, yeah, how will I say, influential experience I had was when a lady uh, from African background, I think from Zimbabwe, uh, she was married to a German, uh, but she used to visit me. I met her through an African community before I was diagnosed, and she started visiting me in the hospital. And it was great to have somebody visit you. It was so lonely. Right. But especially, she started sharing with me. She was a, a Jehovah Witness. Mm -hmm. And so, started sharing a lot of her faith with me and a lot of the literature. Uh, being from, this, uh, from a scientific background, I felt very entertained by some of the uh, religious uh, resources like the Watchtower, uh, which we do share. There's a lot of science stuff in there. Mm -hmm. They link it up with God. I enjoy reading those. And from a Catholic background and not being very grounded in scripture, I found it also very um, helpful that I could look at scripture references in those articles and go back to the Bible and read those stories in the Bible. So I spent a lot of time back and forth between reading those articles and going back to the Bible was extremely educative. And so in the process of doing that, I got to a point where I felt like I, got, I need to review even my whole Christianity, even though I, I was born, you know, going to church as a Catholic and from a very religious family. So long story short, uh, I started really wrestling with some of the deeper teachings of the Jehovah Witnesses. And one of those was very uh, relevant for what I was going through. Uh, it had to do with blood transfusion. And uh, they teach that, you know, blood transfusion is, is, is not biblical, uh, basing on Acts 15, the, the, the conference of Jerusalem. And, I mean, they have whole Leviticus 17, mm -hmm. life, you know, it's, it's in the blood, life of man. So all of that whole teaching. So long story short, I wrestled with that. And I felt like I'd learned so much Bible by just interacting with them and the whole uh, literature that they shared with me to the point where I didn't want to go back to where I was coming from as a Catholic church, but I also didn't know exactly where I was headed. Mm. And so I felt like, okay, in the meantime, let me see if I can hang in here. But this whole uh, blood transfusion doctrine was quite something to wrestle with. And it got to a point where it's a long story, but to cut it short, I, I spoke to the, the doctors in the hospital. I told them that I'm going to stop blood transfusion, which is something I received like every other week or after every chemotherapy treatment, I right. needed them to make up my blood values. And so, uh, and it turned out that the doctor I spoke to later on opened up and shared with me that he's a Christian, a German doctor, uh, he's a Christian, he belongs to a church called International Church of Christ Berlin and all of that. And so, but he dealt with it from a very professional perspective. Uh, and I came behind and said, okay, let's, let's talk about your beliefs. And so we had a very deep conversation uh, through which God used him, I believe, uh, through scripture, Matthew 12, to clarify the legalistic side of uh, the Pharisees, the story with the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath day. Uh, and, and just that story kind of freed me up 
uh, I don't want to get into all the details, right, right. but it basically opened up my mind and, I, and, I, and I, I completely changed my, my decision and said, okay, I think it's in order for me to continue my treatment and to take blood transfusion. And for the following three weeks, he will come to my hospital room every day during his lunch break and study the Bible with me. And three weeks later, I got baptized 1st of October, 1992. That's a really short version of my <laughs> That's an amazing story. That's So you were, you were in Germany getting your bachelor's degree at Berlin University? Which... Technical University of Berlin. Okay. So it was supposed to be a five-year uh, engineering Cause. Okay, so but you're from Cameroon, so French-speaking Cameroon. How did you end up in Germany when Cameroon is a French-speaking uh, a country? Oh, that's a great question. Cameroon actually is, yes, predominantly French, but it happens to be the reverse of Canada. So Canada has predominant English-speaking and a minority French-speaking part. Cameroon has like 10 states, if I use states, which right. uh, is familiar from the U.S., uh, out of the 10 states, eight of them are French-speaking, and only two are English-speaking, and they used to be connected to Nigeria before, before independence and all of that. So I actually come from the English-speaking part of Cameroon, even though I ended up becoming more of a French person. Yeah. I see. Okay. And did you know German before you went to Germany? I had no clue. So to be honest with you, I was working really hard to get a government scholarship to go. My dream school was the Imperial College of Arts and Sciences in the UK. So that was my dream to go there. <laughs> but when you apply for a scholarship, you're asked to uh, uh, put a first choice and a second choice. So if I had my way, I would have put Imperial College of Arts first and second choice. But I had to put something else. I just thought uh, off the top of my head, okay, engineering. Germans are not bad with engineering. So I just put in Germany. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I ended, up in, I ended up getting a scholarship for Germany. That's Good. interesting. Yeah. That was God's leading up. That is amazing, Gilbert. So, okay, so you did not speak German before you went there. You you were raised in English-speaking Cameroon, but it, it it's the country has both languages spoken in it. Now... You speak French, English, German, and how many tribal languages do you speak? Well, my mom is from Nigeria originally, my dad from Cameroon, but at home, we all spoke my father's tribal language. It's called the Bicom language from the northwestern part of Cameroon. So I speak the Bicom language. And maybe if I have to add something to that, we have what we call Pidgin English. It's a form of Creole English, which is street English. Uh, it has some, some mixture with colonial language, some Portuguese, a bit of mixture. It, it sounds different, <laughs> but, but you, you, you hear English words in between. So, uh, I mean, that's what you speak on the streets in Cameroon and even in Nigeria. Nigeria has a slightly different version of that. So those are the main languages I speak, those three lost my father's tribal language, and then the Pidgin English. I've tried uh, learning some Spanish, but I need to immerse myself some more in that. <laughs> well, the, any tips for people who are trying to learn a foreign language, who are considering going overseas or out of the country to, to learn, or maybe do missionary work? What, what's helped you? 
what has helped me, I think the key word for me is immersion, mm. immersing oneself into the language. And it could come from different angles. So uh, there's, there's, there's one of the linguists that has a, uh, his school of thought or, or philosophy of language. I kind of connected to it to an extent. He said, uh, you don't learn a language, you get used to it. I see. Now, I don't subscribe totally to it, but there's a certain level of truth to that in terms of, when I think, when I think of our 21-month-old son, he's at the point here where he's picking up a lot of words and his vocabulary kind of increases every day. Right. And it's just simply from the things he hears around him. So just that immersion. And so immersion could come from, if you're lucky to travel to the country, like when, when I learned German, it was because I found myself in Germany. And so uh, from the classroom, when you go out, you go shopping, you have the opportunity to exercise that language. But if you're not able to do that, you can immerse yourself with listening to tapes while driving, while in traffic, watching TV channels from that particular country. Yeah. If it's French, you know, go for some of those channels. Look out for nationals from those countries in your environment mm. and interact with them. Yeah. You know, but immersion, you know, just immersing oneself, surrounding oneself with the language has been a big one, both for German and French. I, most of my French exploded when I ended up as a missionary in, in the Ivory Coast. And so that immersion, I was reading my Bible in French, knowing the story already in English, in the English Bible. So you take the story of Zacchaeus or whatever familiar story in the Bible, while I'm reading it in French, I already know the story in my mind. So I'm reading in French and I'm thinking, Okay, so this is how you say this, or you say that in French. So that kind of immersion. Right, right. Oh, that's that's great. Now, how did you you've you've been married to Parita, your wife, for eight years? How'd you guys meet? Oh yeah, that's true. Um, so we actually met. Uh, she's from Nigeria. Um, grew up um, between uh, well Lagos later on, but she was born like an hour's flight away from Lagos in Port Harcourt. I mean, she was a disciple here in Lagos, became a disciple as a teenager. So she's been a disciple for as long as the Lagos church has existed for wow. 31 years. She was baptized really uh, early as a teenager. So anyway, we met at a singles international conference. Uh, the very first that was organized for churches across West Africa, both French and English speaking West Africa. So it was the, the, the first version of that conference was in Ghana. So I came from Cameroon. She came from Lagos, Nigeria, and we met in Ghana. Mm. Interestingly, I'd seen her the year before in during a visit to Nigeria, but we never got to speak. But I could make her out because she looks pretty much like her older sister, mm -hmm. who is the wife of one of her elders here in Lagos. And so when uh, I was invited for... Uh, uh, an event at, at, at the older sister's house. She was the one serving food and all of that. So when I met her in Ghana, I could make her out. And, and she was like, I, I must have seen you somewhere. So long story short, that truck, uh, the start of a great conversation. We spent some extra time during the conference when we were doing sightseeing. And we hooked up really well in terms of connecting, getting to know each other. And I invited her on an extra date the following week, so I traveled back to Nigeria on my way back to Cameroon, 
spend the week here, had a, a date uh, evening with her the following weekend, and then returned back to Cameroon. Then we stayed a long distance for a year, building that friendship long distance. And in between, I visited Nigeria in between uh, when she lost her mom. And then during a conference, a year later, we started dating. And that prompted me moving to Nigeria. So basically, I packed my bags and moved to Lagos early 2010, a year after I met her. So it started out as a long distance relationship. That's it. Okay. Exactly. Okay. But there was something about her that just caught your eye. You're like, this, this girl's amazing. You said it. You, I mean, you can say it better than that. <laughs> I did it twice uh, in the Ivory Coast. And so I had some experience with dating relationship. And, and then to kind of like give up on, on that for a while, wasn't, you know, focused on that. But when I met her, I mean, it was, it was just something different. Okay, so you were, you were already well into your 30s. You're, you're 49 now, right? And so you were yes, well into... I was into... actually in my late 30s. Okay. And yes. the, let's just take a, a little side trip on this, this discussion because I think there's a lot of people out there that are going, oh my gosh, I'm in my late 30s or I'm in my 40s or, you know, whatever age. I'm, I'm 24 and I'm not married right now and I don't know if the person's out there. I want to find a disciple and it creates a lot of anxiety and worry. And, yes. and maybe person's in a small church and there's no one, they've dated everybody in the church and they don't see anybody. And they maybe have dated them twice and like, nope, this is not going to happen. And it's a real challenge of faith. What encouragement or advice would you give a person who's really wrestling with this, this whole issue of dating and, and waiting on God? Uh, it's a great question because I went through all of that. In fact, I, when I got married, I'd been a disciple in the church for 20 years. And so, uh, like I mentioned earlier, did it twice. Um, what I can share, a few principles really kept me going uh, between the first two uh, failed relationships in terms of, okay, we had to break up at some point, uh, very heartbreaking. Uh, but what kept me going, a few principles. I, I, I must have learned at some point some things that became like ingrained in me. So one of my principles was that if God cannot be enough for me, then a wife is not going to be enough. So while I'm a single man, I need to learn to make God enough. That, mm. that must have been a tape by Ross Ewell on walking with God, where the whole concept of God must be enough. Mm. You know, I, I embraced that mm. and, and decided to make it a, a lifestyle a goal to attain that, you know, God has got to be more important to me. Uh, I, as much as I really want to get married and start out a family, I, I got to put God first. And, and that got tested through all these years of waiting. And, and so that, 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 that principle is so key. Another one, I probably learned that from Sam Lang's book, um, uh, is it uh, uh, Friends and Lovers? Right. Uh, he had this appendix uh, that was more for dating, those who are dating. And I enjoyed that. He had something like, he called up the six uh, tests of relationships. And uh, it starts out with spirituality, you know, and, and looking out for uh, 
uh, a person that you, you yourself got to put God first and you look and you look out for somebody who puts God first uh, uh, in whatever they do, seeking uh, God first, uh, the, the kingdom first, loving God with all of your heart. So, so, so those principles and be an advantage I also had is having been on the church staff for many years during that time, I, I, will, I will conduct some of those uh, devotionals for singles. Right. I'll teach those principles. In fact, as a single man, I did help people to get married. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a brother whose son, they got married in 1998 and they got their first son uh, 2000. So right now their first son is 18 years uh, plus older. He's now in university. I helped them to get married. Wow. And so, and so spending those years teaching those principles, that's one of the blessings of, of, of even having responsibilities in church is that in the process of helping other people, I didn't realize that I was actually building my own personal future in the process of doing that because so those principles became really ingrained. So those are the principles that I just talked about. Purity was absolutely uh, top on the list. And so holding to God is enough, seeking the kingdom first and trying to be that kind of person and trying to look out for that kind of person uh, was just a principle that I held onto wow. throughout. Okay. And, and so it, it was much, it was pretty easy when I met my wife. You know, the, we clicked. I, I could tell. She yeah. wasn't even like on the church staff. She owns a business, but you would think that she's on the church staff. She's so fully immersed in serving. Yeah, she was leading the singles back then with another brother. Uh, and I, I could just tell that this person loves God. God is priority to her. So I'll say this are some internal principles that became like a spiritual compass for me and guided me in the search. Right. Must have been challenging for her too, because she became a, a Christian as a teen and then waited around 20 years. And it must have been tough for her as she witnessed other people, her friends getting married and people around her. And and she had to wait. I'm sure that that's a, that's a story in itself right there. It is a story. She waited longer than me. She was 23 as a disciple when we got married because she's older than me in the Lord. And so, and for a lady, there's so much pressure, right. societal pressure. It might even be more in an African setting. We're more like the Eastern culture, very collective. So the family, everybody's concerned what's going on. So absolutely. Uh, and one of the things that really attracted me to her was I didn't see any desperation in her. Mm. So I've seen uh, great sisters. Uh, the longer it took, you, you could tell that, you know, some desperation, there's some buildup of desperation. Right. And if it happens to us men, how much more women? But in her, I just saw a woman who was just content, serving God, waiting on him. That attracted me. Yes, that's right. That's right. Now, You've got a 21-month-old 20, son. He, he's adopted. When did you find out you would need to adopt? What, what, what right. were the circumstances? So, correct. Um, it's a good question because what happened is, in fact, while we were dating, I still remember a day, we had this special date. Uh, we're probably engaged to marry. I went to this really special, they call it, um, um, it's a French bakery kind of restaurant. 
and we really have this very special date where she brought along a list of, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, there were 97 questions <laughs> that she had actually, she had emailed them to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she had emailed them to me uh, probably a week or two before. Uh, and we individually went through the question, all kinds of questions. How many siblings do you have? Uh, what are their names? Uh, what's this? It was just questions that help you to get to know each other. And I, I, I missed those questions. There was a question of, if you guys, if you guys get married, would you want to adopt? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we had both independently ticked yes wow. to that question. And so when we met to just discuss, you know, compare our notes, kind of, uh, it came out that that was one of the things that we're all open to it, not knowing that uh, later on we'll fall back on that because two years uh, into our marriage and to conceive, we realized it wasn't working and she went through a series of tests and later on the doctor said, you know what, maybe your husband also needs to go through some tests. And so in the process of that, it became obvious that having gone through chemotherapy and all the whole treatment with cancer, it had affected me in terms of fertility and all of that stuff. And so it became, it became obvious that I was the problem. And, uh, and so it was tough. It was really emotionally tough, especially I felt bad for her. I mm. felt like, man, I'm putting her into this. But she was incredibly supportive, incredibly loving. She, I mean, she, there was no sense of blame or anything. She just supported me. And so we, we prayed through that with some good friends who supported us through that season. And we, we resolved that, okay, let's, let's focus on adoption. So now it wasn't even a question of, do you want to adopt? Do I want to? We've already discussed that. Right. And so, so we, we, we just launched and focused on that. But it took us five years to, to finally get through. It was a long journey. Wow. Five years. Yeah. yeah it took us five long years. That, that, so, so that was that like a crisis in your marriage or was it just something where it was challenging and you just, uh, just work through. I mean, that, that must have been tough for you. Did you know at the time that you were sterile, that you w wouldn't be able to conceive, or is this something you just discover? I mean, how did it, how did it hit you when you found out from the doctor, like, I can't, I can't have kids? Uh, it hit me really hard. Um, I, I, what probably happened to me in my personal journey, I think part of the reasons why it took me so long uh, to even get married is. Like the first five years after I became a disciple, marriage, marriage wasn't at all in the in the you know in, in the radar at right, all. Right. I was just happy to be alive yeah. and happy to serve God. Right. You know. So so for many years I was that kind of guy who was just really happy that I'm alive and serving. And then I dated. It didn't work out. Four months we break up. Second relationship lasted for a year plus, and then we break up. Uh, so long story short. I think already before I got married, I'd kind of conditioned my mind to, to think that you might not, you, you might ne never get married actually, right. maybe, right. you know? And so getting married was a miracle. Uh, and then uh, your, your, the dreams you're giving up on start coming back. Right. And you start feeling like, wow, so I can actually start a family. Right. And so I think the way it hit me was all these dreams were coming back and then all of a sudden, I noticed this, this really is not going to happen. Mm. 
from a medical or scientific perspective. So it did. It was very disappointing. Yeah. It took. It took. It took a couple of good friends. I remember, there's a brother. He was like our, our regional leader at the time. Uh, he and his wife, when they when they learned about it, they just came to our, to our, our house in the morning and stayed with us throughout the day. Throughout that day, they just stayed through. Just we just and and just their presence and their company kind of took us through like the darkest or the lowest of those moments. Mm. So till date, we still talk to them and thank them with tears in our eyes yeah. for just being there for us. Wow, it's yes. amazing. Okay, so let's let's go back to your, your baptism. So you, you became a Christian. You're saved. The doctor, who's a disciple, he baptizes you. Can you give me a quick rundown of like, what what did you do then? Can you like from that time till now? Like, how many churches? Like, did you go straight back to Cameroon? Were you part of the Berlin church for a while? And then just give me a quick rundown of of you know time periods and where you're at because I mean it's it's a lot. You've been all over the place. Can you give me just the a quick history there? Up until Excellent. now. So, sure. So the first two years, I stayed in Berlin, went back to school, continued engineering studies, but I pretty much knew that I was a new person and I had a completely new worldview, uh, no more driven by science and engineering, but driven by wanting to serve God and make an impact in, in people's lives. That was my, my new desire. So when I heard about a church planting that was going to leave Ivory Coast to go plant a church in Cameroon, where I was born, I jumped on the opportunity. And so that's how I connected and met Hervé for the first time, Hervé Florent, because he was leading the church in the Ivory Coast. So two years, exactly two years after being baptized, I left Berlin for Abidjan. Hmm. And I was going to just join the missions team, spend about a month or two with the missions team on ground, and I will leave together for Cameroon. Uh, Hervé was one of those who advised me that given he saw a lot of, uh, you call it potential, uh, had a conversation with me that Gilbert, I, I know you really want to go back to Cameroon and share the gospel with your family. Uh, if I were you, because of what I see God doing with your life, I will recommend that you stay longer in Abidjan and get some ministry training. And so it was, it was tough. Uh, because my heart was already in Cameroon. I had to pray through it, but I trusted the wisdom and I stayed back for an extra three years. So the mission team left for Cameroon and I stayed back in Abidjan and led a couple of ministries. And that's how I got a lot of um, ministry training, hands-on ministry training, mainly from Hervé and some older uh, uh, leaders who were there in, in Abidjan. So two years in Berlin after my conversion, three years in Abidjan, then I'm now given the opportunity to go take over the leadership of the church in Cameroon that it was already existing for three years. Wow. And so I moved to Douala, Cameroon, French-speaking part of Cameroon. Good time to exercise a lot of the French I've learned in Abidjan. <laughs> and so I led the church in Douala uh, uh, 97, 98 for those two years. And one of the greatest victories of my life was I was able to baptize my dad wow. who passed on two months after his baptism because he was he was quite ill. And so that's another story. But um, uh, then 
uh, two years, uh, almost two years in, in Douala, Cameroon, and I'm, I'm called back to base. I needed some strengthening, came back to Abidjan and led a couple of other ministries. And the highlight of that uh, second season in Abidjan was when I had the opportunity to lead campus for about two years and experience some incredible growth spiritually and the campus really grew uh, uh, spiritually and in numbers. Uh, I think to date, uh, it's probably one of the largest campus ministries uh, in our families of churches and saw, saw the genesis of that whole growth. And then also had some great time leading the teens ministry church wide. So I was in Abidjan for about five years from uh, um, 99 till 2004 leading mainly campus and teens and an extra ministry. Then I'm called back to go to Cameroon, this time to plant a new church in English speaking Cameroon and I away from my village, my father's village where I was born. Mm. So that's Bamenda. Uh, this, is, this was more like a, a house church planting. It was just me and a sister uh, who left Abidjan, both single. And then we, we felt like we're just two singles. We need a couple with us. So grabbed a couple from the church in Douala that I'd led before, and four of us went to, to start the work in Bermenda. Uh, lived in a pretty big house together, started the church in our living room. Uh, and so so that was the, the second stage of going back to Cameroon and did that nine, uh, 2004, 2005. Was called back to Abidjan. Financial challenges forced me to go back. Uh, supporting the work was became challenging. And I, I went back to Abidjan and spent 2005, 2006. And then 2007, I actually uh, resigned from the church staff uh, with the need, feeling the need to go back to school. So that was my journey till then. After resigning, went back to Cameroon and did a long distance course, even though there was a local campus, earned the degree 2009, and that's when I met Perita, and then early 2010, moved to Lagos, Nigeria, and I've been here for the past 10 years. Why did you move to, to Lagos? So Lagos, uh, primary reason was meeting Perita, because she's from Lagos. I see. She's based here. Oh, that's right. So you that told me like that a- early. Okay, so you, you met her. Okay, that's where the ties into that story. Okay, so you were... Going after your your dream girl at the time. Okay, so there we go. All right. Well said. Got it. I literally crossed the Atlantic Ocean for her. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's amazing. So you were you went back. You were intending to go to Cameroon, but you you got trained in Abidjan with Hervé, and then you went to Cameroon. Cameroon led the church there. Went back, and so you you did a lot during during that time period. Now, a lot of back and forth. Yes. yes. You know, you mentioned in your bio that you travel to, now that you travel to 10 or more countries a year, up to 15 different churches, you're doing a lot of traveling. You consider yourself a traveling teacher and you're an evangelist. Can you, can you give us an update um, for listeners? Because people are listening from around the world. I mean, as far away as Fiji to Ireland and in you know, South America. How are the churches in your part of Africa growing? Can you can you give us some highlights? Like what kind of progress are they making? Because some some people, you know, where they're they're living, churches are not growing as quickly as, as we would want. 
but can you give us the, the progress of the churches? Yeah, thanks for that. So uh, pretty much having the opportunity to travel to different parts of Africa, I will primarily share from French-speaking Africa, where I spent a lot of those years between Abidjan and Cameroon, and also from English-speaking West Africa. And I do have a lot of connection with Southern and Eastern Africa. So uh, we, we, we probably have today, so we do have five families of churches in Africa. Um, French-speaking Africa grew pretty much and had to split into two families of churches that happened last year. So Central African churches were, that has six countries and a group of about 15 or 16 churches, now a family, a group of uh, churches on their own, uh, still connected with West-speaking uh, French Africa, with Abidjan as the you know, like the, the big church in that area. Then we have Nairobi for East Africa. We have Lagos for English speaking West Africa. And we have Johannesburg for Southern Africa. So that's for the continental perspective of Africa. Uh, we probably have across Africa close to 13,000 disciples. I know it was 12,000 plus at some point. So, and um, what I can share about how the churches are growing is from what I shared earlier on about the campus ministry, one of the great sources of growth has just been how people have transited from becoming disciples as campus students. So those I led on campus between 2000 and 2002, um, many of those now graduated. And interestingly, post 2003, what we know happened within our family of churches 2003 where we couldn't receive much funding anymore from the us or from the churches you know so we had to adapt with adapt to the new circumstance and so interestingly if i take the ivory coast for example many of those uh, students who came out of campus who had been well trained they were bible talk leaders they, were, they had hands-on in studying the bible with people just they just had a great spiritual foundation being on campus now the government came up with a policy that their first job if they're going to work with the government their first job must be in another city outside of abidjan so they were all posted to lots of other cities and many of the cities didn't have churches and so when they when they to start their new job either as a teacher uh, there's a church that started with a brother who who uh, has started working as a judge in Abidjan and was posted there. So wherever they went, they started Bible talks, uh, family, you know, house churches. And so with time, the, 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 the small group grew to the point where they were now asking for Abidjan to help send them like a full-time person. Most of them actually will open up an account, a, a bank account, and put in what will be normally be their tithe or their contribution, they were put into that account and they got to a point where they turned to Abidjan and said, Abidjan, we've collected enough money to pay a full-time church uh, staff person or couple. Can you please send us a leader? And so in Abidjan today, I checked on the campus leader earlier on today and he gave me the names of 11 churches outside Abidjan that were started by former campus students. That's fantastic. It, it, it's interesting how, you know, God works through 
things that we may not think are, are God himself. You know, the government gives a mandate and says, hey, we don't want all of our brains to be right in the inner city or the, the central city. We want to uh, bless the, the smaller provinces or regions. And yet right. that opens the doors, like the scattering in, in Acts chapter 8 that we read about and how that, that prompted more plantings. And, and it makes me wonder about the pandemic today. I wasn't planning on going there, but how do you see this pandemic benefiting the spread of the gospel? How do you see it? Can you see any opportunities for the spread of the gospel in the midst of the challenges and the suffering that, that most country, all countries are going through right now? Uh, Robert, that's a great question. And before I address that, just so it doesn't uh, get off my mind, uh, I'll mention quickly another church uh, that, that was started by circumstance. Uh, this was not government policy. This was war that broke out in the Congo. And this was Brazzaville. There was a church that started in Brazzaville, was barely a year old when the, when the war break out, did break out. Uh, this was 96, 97. And so the missionaries who had come from Abidjan to plant the church in Brazzaville, Congo, had to run for their lives. And so they ran to another city called Point Noir. And so in trying to have Point Noir for their lives, just trying to protect their lives, while there, they shared the gospel with people in Point Noir. And uh, they didn't stay for too long. But people became disciples. And when they had to leave Point Noir, they left them with the first principles of how to study the Bible people. They left them with those, you know, material. And guess what? Point Noir, I've been there personally uh, three years ago. Point Noir has a church of over 350 disciples. <laughs> that's, so, that's God. Uh, while talking about circumstance, I thought I shouldn't lose the opportunity to mention. I'm so glad example. you shared that. Yeah. A year ago, I was visiting in Paris on a, a, on a trip and I ran into the, to the leader of Brazzaville. And amazingly enough, we, we were there on the oh, subway. Wow. We were on the subway going to, to church and I was looking and, and um, my, we didn't exactly know where to get off, but my son saw this man exiting the subway and he said, dad, that guy looks like a disciple. Oh, I can't yes. That. He said he looks like he he looks like let's follow him. And so we just we didn't know where we were going. And so we just guessed and we said, we're looking for a church. Do you happen to know where there is one? And he said, yes, I'm going there right now. And it turned out he was the leader of the Brazzaville church. And what I was amazed by is that he told me he was there on a business trip. And yeah. that the church was 400 people, and he was leading it uh, while while running his own business. And I, I didn't get a chance to talk to him. He spoke French, so we couldn't, I don't remember talking too much that day, but uh, we, did, we didn't get a chance to talk. But I thought, how, how could that even happen? That's so amazing. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, that, I mean, I'm going to come back to the pandemic, but this is like a, an interesting bracket here because he actually is now the special advisor. He's an engineer by training and, and he goes on those trips and by the government and he's currently the special advisor to the president 
of the Republic of Congo in matters of energy and power. I know him personally, we've spent time with him a couple of times, even my, one of my last visits with Jacoby, we did spend very personal time. I know his wife, yes, he does that. And, and, and those churches are led by most people like that, which leads to the third category I was gonna mention of how churches are growing in Africa is uh, you get also a lot of professionals who are, are sent to go start work in different parts of the country and they take advantage, you know, to share their faith. And he's a, a typical, I call him, a, he's like a tent maker, you know, mm. he works and is such a blessing to the church. But please, I need to come back to the pandemic question. That's right? what we can come back to. Okay, so what you've shared is, you know, the question is, the churches have grown quickly. You said that there's 13,000 disciples throughout Africa. It's broken up into five different spiritual regions or families. And that you shared one thing. One was that uh, the college students who became Christians, they they were mandated, in particular in, in uh, Ivory Coast, to go to different provinces. And so those those started churches. Then you said, then there's tent makers, those who are professionals who've began or led churches like the gentleman we just we just talked about anything that else that's helping these churches because i i do know that the growth of the of the churches not just our family of churches but christianity in general and denominationalism it's really shifted south south southern hemisphere uh, south america africa uh, south asia i mean that's where a lot of the rapid growth is happening Anything else that's helping helping the churches in Africa to grow? What are you saying? Thank, thanks for sharing that, for mentioning that context about how things are sh shifting. Having become a disciple in Europe myself, and having spent the past uh, uh, decades, I mean, I mean, serving here on, in Africa, I can confirm what you said. I think also another big uh, element, which I think Heve must have mentioned that when you guys talked, is the whole principle of becoming all things to all people you know the you know the the, the the cultural flexibility and being able to adapt to new circumstances so uh, in Africa the typical method of you know putting together a missions team and then sending them off we did that in the beginning and most of the big churches like Abidjan Lagos uh, Nairobi Johannesburg they were planted that way and we did use that method to plant a couple of churches in the capital cities across many African countries. But going from the capital city to the other provinces, smaller provinces, and one economic, uh, from a financial perspective, it wouldn't really work because uh, uh, you know it's capital intensive to, to, to form a, a missions team the traditional way. So adapting to all these other methods I mentioned, being sensitive to the government policy and taking advantage of that, or is it the war? Uh, there was a time when somebody would have a new job in another city and would say, you can't go there because there are no disciples there. But we changed our attitude and said, can we train him? Can we prepare him? So that when he goes there, he starts off a family, you know, a house church, a Bible talk. So, so enabling people be able to do that became, I mean, the example of the, the, the Ivory Coast I gave earlier, 
it, it coincided that one of the brothers was going up north in Korogo, very far north, to go for work. And then it coincided with the university there opened up. So he now used a lot of his expertise to get a campus ministry going. And then a couple of uh, campus disciples got uh, you know, admission into that university. So you now have a family person, and you have singles, you have campus. And you, before you know, you have a good prototype of a church, and it's like going from there. So I think big, uh, what I'll mention is that flexibility, being able to be flexible and adapting to new uh, situations. I know Africa has uh, also this family or, you know, uh, uh, a collective culture. And we do have lots of examples of, uh, of families that became disciples. You know, uh, a brother became a disciple, went and spoke to the parents. Before you know, the, the other siblings become disciples, the cousins become disciples. So you do have a lot of family members becoming disciples, which is the way our culture in Africa operates. You know, right. so your, your cousin is your brother, your your uncle is your father. And so it's a, it's a big family system. And so using that has also helped, like riding that wave, that cultural right. wave has also contributed to the spread of the gospel. Okay, so this, this whole concept, this is so interesting to me. And I, I just, I love to plant churches. That's that's like the thing I love the most. And something that I've, I've felt you know, I've, I think a lot about, okay, how can we accelerate the growth of churches around the world? And this is what you're saying there is something I, I agree wholeheartedly. I feel like there's there's been a template for church planting, which has worked in the past. In the past, we had um, quite a bit of money. There was large sources of money, lots of giving. And a lot of the, our movement was very young, especially in the North, North America in particular, um, but now many of the older people, you, you're included, myself, in middle age, more expensive, less mobile, got kids, more tied down. Uh, back in the day, it was just, you know, no kids could go anywhere, just like you did going back and forth between countries. And it wasn't as expensive. So money was, money was, uh, it was a lot cheaper back then back then. Now it's become very expensive and prohibitive to, to do a traditional type planting. I mean, it'll cost, depending on the country, just a lot of money. And then, and then also I, I see obstacles in people's mindsets because what I, one thing I see with, with people is that uh, some people, um, there's, there's kind of a, a mindset like, I don't want to leave the major city you know, the major metropolis, whether it's okay. Lagos or whether it's Los Angeles or whether it's Phoenix or New York City and anything else, anything smaller is considered kind of like a backwoods kind of, a, you know, there's a, a certain type of a hidden pride towards that. Like those people are not educated or they're not as refined as I am. And so I think that that holds pe certain people back. I grew up in a small town, so I, that I don't I don't feel that quite that same way. But then also, uh, I think there's a fear, and what you're sharing here is that you've got tent makers, and can you can you talk to someone who's thinking, hey, maybe they have a job now, maybe they're in their 30s or 40s, they're working, they're professional, they've got talents, they've converted people, and and they're thinking, man. I think I could go plant a church and I, I'd like to, but I'm afraid of leaving security. 
And yeah. what Gilbert is sharing there is like, ooh, he's talking to me there. You know, I could I could go and do something, but I'm afraid to. And and leaving security and oh gosh, what what do I do? Can you talk to that person? Uh, thanks for bringing that up, Rob. So um, I like to share personally because even after um, moving to Lagos, I got a corporate job, and I worked in the IT industry, different managerial uh, positions for probably six to seven years and so two years uh, three years ago 2017 our company went through a pretty rough time we lost some big clients uh, that were paying us a lot of money so long story short i lost my job and and i was now faced with choices to make and you talked about fear and so for me at that point i spent some time praying fasting with my wife and I was quick to want to jump on the next job opportunity just to put some food on the table and, and, and you know, take up my responsibilities. Uh, but I know my wife was of great influence. Uh, I came really close to picking, to, you know, accepting a particular offer. And she was like, sweetie, are you really sure you want to accept that job? And she said, because I know you and I know how much you want to serve. This particular job, if you, if you take it up, uh, you're not going to have time to serve like like you normally would want to, and and as she said to me, I think I think God has been taking care of us somehow, and so so I, in my opinion, you can tell them you're not available, and let's trust God, let's wait on God, something better will come along, mm. and, and, and so for me that was a turning point uh, to see my wife's support, and you won't believe that uh, the, the the doors that opened up after that. That has enabled me, like I mentioned, in the past three years, I've been going averagely to like 10 countries, visiting churches, teaching, encouraging. So overcoming that fear is really a matter of faith. It's really a matter of, you know, putting this before God and trusting God. Put your, your dreams before God. Put what you want to do for him. Uh, my wife has always known that even while in the corporate setting, uh, things get really busy, but she's always known that deep inside of me, I, I want to look for ways of serving mm. and, and making myself available. And so she saw through it. And so what I will, I will encourage somebody like that is if you're married, you know, it, it's great having that kind of dynamic, like what I have with my wife in terms of putting those dreams before God and trusting him and, and, and praying and fasting has often worked for me. You know, right, right. Putting those things before God and waiting on Him and trusting Him she has always come through at some point. Right. So if you're dreaming of going somewhere to, to do mission in one way or the the way you describe the category of, of, of brothers and sisters in the, in the in the fellowship is that they have so much to give. That's right. But they often get tied down by the constraints mm -hmm. of you know whatever job and all of that. And so there's a there's a a, a, a a leap of faith that is required at that point that's right and I, I see that with many many gifted people the tension between security on one side and significance on the other side they want their lives to make a difference they want their lives to have significance but at the same time they're afraid of losing that security and so they're stuck and they, they get caught. And even with young people, uh, we had a major recession uh, in 2008. And that's really yeah. 
affected the mindset of even young people coming out of college. They're very security minded and not, I would say not as bold as maybe disciples in the past because they're concerned like, Hey, I got to make money. My parents want me to make money, but we won't go into that too much more. Thank you so much for sharing on that one. So Gilbert, if a person's interested in becoming a teacher, where, where would they start? Someone who's like, man, I'd like to be a teacher. I really enjoy the Bible. Where would they go? Oh, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned I really enjoy the Bible because that's, that, that, that's where it all starts. Uh, teaching has to do with enjoying learning and wanting to share what you're learning with, with others. Um, so the learning has to do with, you know, enjoy learning from all kinds of sources, from books, from, you know, reading, learning from others who have a, a similar passion you know, for me, uh, who, you know, just connecting with other teacher types has been a, a great, great source of learning and continues to be for me. So but then a, a really good part of teaching is, yes, you're learning stuff, but then you've got to find a way to communicate it in a way that's simple, that is clear, that, 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 that makes an impact on people. And so, uh, and the process of doing that can be one-on-one, it can be in a small group. Uh, what I like to say upfront about teaching is a gift and it's something you enjoy doing. It's a service, it's a calling. It's not so much of a, t- the title is simply recognizing whatever you're already doing mm. way before then. Mm. And so uh, I, I like emphasizing on the role. And so in the process of, learning and sharing, uh, you want to also get feedback. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's what I'm teaching, making sense. I see. Finding ways of, of getting that feedback, you know. So I think that's a pretty good place to start. And uh, yeah, the other aspects come, but I, I want to keep it that simple. Yeah, right. I'm sure you could get more into detail there, but loving the Bible is what you're saying. And then uh, developing your skills and presenting it so that it's clear and and compelling and not not boring but but interesting well, well, you, you're both well a, you're an evangelist and a teacher that's that's double whammy right there that's powerful now what's the best advice you've ever received i i know that's a tough question i know you've received a lot of advice over the years but but i i did send these questions to you earlier so you've gotten a chance to think about it what's the best advice you've ever received or at least I'm really t- glad you, you emphasized <laughs> that it's a tough question. So, so what I did is I, I came up with the top three. Okay, great. That That's I found, fine. I found, I found like it, it was a turning point. So early on as a, as a young disciple, still in hospital, uh, the brother who was a doctor who studied the Bible with me, there was a day he walked into my room and we're having a conversation. And he said, Gilbert, maybe you didn't come to Germany necessarily for engineering studies. Maybe, maybe there's a, a different reason why God brought you here. So he just dropped that thought and it, it got me busy. It engaged me. And so uh, I probably spent the rest of uh, my two years stay in Germany trying to find out why God brought me there. So uh, I, I still remember that. So it, 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 it was a comment he made uh, 
It wasn't imposing it. It wasn't, he just made the comment that he stuck with me. And it probably contributed to me being where I am today. Yeah. Uh, the second piece is Have uh, early days in Abidjan while I was getting trained. I remember there was a day, there was a day I went to his place and we're spending time. He noticed I was pretty low emotionally. Um, and so we had a really good conversation. At the end of it all, after I shared a lot of the things, he kind of helped me to bring out what was going on inside of me. At the end of it, he said, Gilbert, you're kind of person. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can bottle things up. You know, it's important that you share your emotions, what's going on inside. I think for the kind of person that you are, it's really important that you, that you share. And, and that piece of advice has stuck with me ever since then till date. I mean, be it in my marriage, be it in my relationships, just the need for me to remain authentic and real. And, and you know, so that, that has really stuck with me. The third one I'd like to share is uh, when I was, you know, when I, when I left the, the church staff, went to school, finished the degree course, and I, and I was moving to Lagos. I had the opportunity to come back and even, I mean, I, I get back to the church staff here in Lagos and, you know, and serve fully on the church staff. And I had to make a decision. Do I want to go back on the church staff or do I want to get a job and work and serve? And so I was caught up between those two choices. And, and, and I, I prayed about it, fasted, but also reached out to a range of people to get their advice. And one of the responses I got, this was Richard Alawaye, one of our Nigerian evangelists, of course, based in the US mm -hmm. now. Uh, it was a very short reply, and there was a liner that stuck with me. He said, never serve on staff or, you know, never do ministry or serve on staff. I don't remember exactly the way he termed it, but never do it out of duty, mm. you know. And, and, and for me, that resonated. And it kind of helped me make my decision. So even though I went on to decide to look for a job, in my heart of hearts, I was like, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to serve as if I'm on that church staff. That's what I've tried to do for the past 10 years. So those three, I don't know which one you'll find to be the top, but those three actually have made a difference till date. Yeah, yeah. That's It's interesting when you... See, so you went into the private sector. Let's and <clears throat> you went back to school, and then you worked. Now you're working for the church again. Okay. Actually, what's what I'm doing now? Actually, interestingly, I'm the only uh, teacher. We have three teachers, appointed teachers here. I'm the only uh, appointed teacher who is actually not paid by the church. Uh, what has happened? in the past three years is that I did have a couple of friends of mine back in Germany who said, look, Gilbert, we know your passion for teaching. We would like to support you to travel to across African churches and teach and strengthen churches. So I did that 2018, uh, not for a fee. So they basically supported my travels. And then uh, the following year, they stepped it up and said, look, you've been doing this voluntarily. How, how do you survive? I said, well, my wife has been helping, uh, you know, make make the ends meet. And they said, no, 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 no. We got we, we got to find a way to also support some of your personal needs. So, so I've actually been serving as if I'm on the church staff, but not paid by the Lagos Church or 
but just voluntary support. Uh, and then the African Mission Association, Paul Ramsey, they've also stepped in there, seeing that I travel to many African churches across uh, the continent. So there's been that voluntary support that has really kept me going. So you were so passionate about teaching, you were paying your own expenses to travel to these different churches? Yeah, I, my wife and I, for many years, that's what we would do. We will save up money and we will take a vacation. We will travel to different churches. We've actually even gone on, uh, paid our way to go Bible study tours to learn in Israel, in Greece, in Turkey. So we, we generally will raise up funds to do that. And so a couple of friends of us noticed how passionate we were about strengthening churches, about learning. And, and so when I had time in my hands, they now stepped on and said, look, Gilbert, you have time in your hands. I want to support you to keep doing what you've always loved doing. So you're paying your own way. And then benefactors came along and said, hey, we want to help you out because of what you're doing. That's so inspiring. And, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But it, that's got to take a lot of passion in order for, for you to be doing that. Can you talk to a person who's maybe going through a transition, maybe who used to be in the ministry and is, is now working, maybe considering going back in the ministry or, or just working in the ministry, not paid by the church. Oftentimes that transition can be very challenging emotionally, mentally, you know, any, any advice for that person? Very true, very correct. And so what I can say is, uh, again, personal experience is, first thing is we're all in the ministry as Christians. So we're all missionaries. Uh, the only difference is some uh, devote the full time and get some support for that. And others choose the path of Paul to do it fully with passion that work and support it. And Paul from time to time had some voluntary people like the Philippians who support him. Uh, but it's about the heart. It's about, you know, keeping that heart, maintaining that heart. I'll never forget, maybe another piece of advice I got when I, when I was going to resign, I remember writing to a good friend, Joey Harris, to tell him about my intentions. And what Joey told me is, Gilbert, you want to go back to school, you want to learn, you want to do all of that great stuff, but please, wherever you find yourself, don't stop being a disciple. Don't stop serving. Don't stop giving. You know, that also has talked with me throughout this whole period. So whether you are still working and while you're working, you want to make yourself really useful. Uh, so the advice I will give in that particular area is find out what your gifts are. Mm -hmm and how you can really support even those who are in the church staff using your gifts. Right. I believe there's an incredible opportunity for partnership between those who are in the church staff and those who are working. So going into the corporate world has developed certain aspects of my gifts and my personality in terms of uh, administrative gifts, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, team leadership. Right. There's so many things I've learned in the corporate world that are so useful in the ministry. Very useful. And so, so a lot of those who are in the corporate world have so much to give, even while you're there. Right. You know, so that's one category. Now, for those who are thinking about transiting, 
I often talk to people about, I've had the opportunity to even uh, do a training for Shell, one of the oil companies here, on our company. It was a training for people who were going either on voluntary retirement or really retired, and they were being paid off some big money uh, uh, to set them up. And so you're teaching them on, uh, when you leave Shell, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to, uh, you want to, do business, you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, so that transition there, it's a, it's a big one. And so uh, uh, what, what our advice is, you can find a way to transit step by step, you know, uh, it, it might, it must, it must not be abrupt, right. you know, so if you're, you're working for a company and you're thinking about maybe becoming an entrepreneur, so you have flexibility of time to be able to, you know, that's one of the things I enjoy now. I do have a lot of flexibility and it, it, do, it does help me in my service. So it will now be a matter of learning how to transit into that role. So right. identify where you want to transit to and find people that can help or handhold you through that process. Right. Uh, and, and, and then uh, for those who want to fully go back into maybe work for church staff, I personally knowing the ups and downs of economy, uh, I, I really strongly advise that if people have a way out to, to, to find a way to serve from a more voluntary uh, place, you know, it's just so powerful. It's very like powerful. What I do now, what I do now is it's great that I get the support from friends in Germany or the AMA, it's, when I begin every year, I'm never sure if the support will come or not. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm never sure. And, and so I always have like a plan B of other things I can do, you know, using my gifts. And so but when the support comes, I'm glad because it allows me to use my time to do what I really love doing. Right. But it's always great to also have that plan B. And I advise a lot of even young people who think about going into the ministry, uh, I went into the ministry without uh, finishing a, a college degree or all of that stuff. And it can create a lot of anxiety when you're thinking, if I'm not on the church staff tomorrow, what can I do? Mm -hmm. So I think it's advisable that people have a plan B, not out of faithlessness, but out of just being pragmatic because you have a family to take care of. Right. And so I believe that when there's a plan B, it, it, there is less anxiety and you're, you're freer to serve and to give. Those are just a few thoughts. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just like Paul was a tent maker, he had a fallback if he didn't receive the support. Uh, I was talking to Kai, I was talking to a, a church leader named Kai Foster here in the States, and he leads a church in Reno, Nevada, and the church has been growing quite a bit. And he said that his view is that there's so many people that have been in the ministry or had ministry experience in the past. If those people were simply activated, uh, so many of the smaller churches that are languishing would just take off because they have the experience, they've got family, they've got the kind of uh, life skills that those smaller churches needed. And I think if we're all of our churches around the world are going to grow, we've got to get those people fully activated. And, and if you're listening today and, and you're thinking that could be me, I say, boy, you are needed. And you could go to a smaller area, smaller church, and be a, a big fish in a small pond and make a big difference uh, oh, if you chose to do oh, that. Yeah. 
So that's thanks for seeing that, Ron. Yeah, thanks that's so much, Ron. That's a, a great example on your part, Gilbert, but such a need kingdom-wide for sure. Now, um, let, let's, let's just shift here a little bit. What's the most, you've been all over the place. Can you share about an inspiring conversion story you've witnessed? What, you know, Sean Wooten's got some of the most inspiring stories I've heard. But have you, have you ever, can you share a story about a person becoming a Christian that was just like kind of stood out to you a little bit? Besides your own. I mean, yours is an amazing story right there. And probably the, the top 10 that I've heard. But anything else? Uh, it's funny. I, I thought through it, and uh, uh, I could mention uh, the church I was, I was privileged to plant in Cameroon. Our first two baptisms were two women, and the, and the first one was actually the pastor of a country of a congregation, a woman and a pastor. And I remember the conversations we had to go through for her to even uh, invite me to come and teach in her church because. He started out by me kind of confronting her. How come she's a woman and she's a pastor? And it didn't start out well. But uh, a few weeks later, she calls me up. I said, Gilbert, she calls me pastor. Um, can you please come and teach my church? I mean, do you need six weeks or how long do you need? Uh, and so I'll summarize that story because I have two more uh, to quickly summarize. Uh, by I went there, taught for six weeks. First day, I combined discipleship and the word study. At the end of that session, she is the one who got up and asked uh, about 60 people who were seated there, who wants to be a disciple? And then she raised her hand as the first person who wants to be a disciple. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> it wasn't a joke. She studied the Bible for the next two or three weeks. She was the first person we baptized in Bamenda, and the second person who got baptized the same day with her was her assistant, like the assistant pastor. So both of them were our first two baptisms, and a total of about 12 people out of the 60 who were there became disciples. That, that, I, I mean, that was like an out-of-body experience. So <laughs> I'll talk about that. I'll mention Moses Kalala, who is currently leading the family of churches in, in Congo, so he's based in Kinshasa and oversees the churches in these six countries in Central Africa. He used to be a Pentecostal pastor, going from country to country, doing miracles, so to say, you know, and all the stuff that we know about, you know. And so he went from, he even came to Lagos from Congo, traveled across West Africa. And when he got to Abidjan, a brother invited him to a church event. And when he came, he was so convicted studied the Bible, became a disciple, gave up all the pastor stuff, was a normal disciple, found a job, was working, you know, a normal job and a normal brother in church and joined the missions team that was going to start the church in Kinshasa. Uh, that was uh, 95. And today he leads that group of six churches. His conversion was spectacular. I was part of those who studied the Bible with him. Oh, and almost one like of my a great friends... Almost like yeah, a Simon the Sorcerer story, kind of kind of a situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And the last one I want to mention was sure. my father's baptism because wow. it reminds me so much of mine. So he was from a very Catholic background, like I mentioned. Uh, we had fallen out. Uh, she was. He was angry with me because I left school and got into ministry and all of that. 
wrote a letter to me before I met him physically when I moved to Cameroon. We had been apart for seven years. He wrote a letter to me denying me. He was about to deny me as his son. Uh, it was intense. Mm. When I met him in Cameroon for the first time, he was dying. He was in the hospital dying. And I thought, if he dies at this moment, there is such a distance between us. And I felt terrible. I just crumbled. I was on my knees, weeping, begging for his forgiveness. And long story short, he forgave me, asked me to get up from my knees, embraced me, and then turned around and said, I, you, you said you were, you were sent to come lead the church, your church in Douala. I know you would do a great job. I know you. Mm. And, uh, and then the second thing he said is, we Catholics are not being taught enough Bible. Mm. Can you please teach me the Bible? Wow. And from that point on, the weeks that followed, his condition got actually worse. And I pleaded with God to keep him alive. And so we started the Bible while he was in hospital. Other brothers got involved and he got baptized and passed on exactly two months after that. I had the opportunity to baptize him. So I've tried to cram those few conversion stories in one. That's that's powerful. For anyone, you know, who's wanted to see their family become Christians, that's an that's an inspiring story. While I was living in Japan in the in the mid mid and late nineties, I uh, became friends with the ambassador to Japan from the Ivory Coast, and he actually lived in <sighs> lived in my neighborhood. And I, I was reaching out to him, and during that time, he got recalled to the country because the country was going through a civil war, and. He, he was really, you know, nervous about going back. Very nice gentleman. But uh, I'm sure you've seen some pretty unstable situations, some scary situations. You, you Just like you said there, you're in the Ivory Coast during that time. Can you share about a, a story that was a little hair-raising for you? Interestingly, when you sent that list of questions, I was going to share exactly about my time in the Ivory Coast. And uh, so two episodes, the first will be when the military took over and we were leaving. We were single brothers living in a brother's flat. In fact, we were at walking distance from the presidency, from the president's house. So, I mean, the gunshots, the firing. I mean, you, you get the impression that it's happening just behind your house. <laughs> and so, you're... you're, you're you're, you're, you're lying on the floor, you're hiding, you're, you don't even know where to go to. And, and I'll never forget, uh, the, 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 the lead evangelist at the time had traveled and his family was almost like, you know, uh, they needed help during that time. And I remember having with another brother, we had to walk uh, uh, just to go check on his family in, in a ghost town. It was scary. That was one of the scariest things I did during that period. Uh, and thank God we were protected. Uh, and a similar event, this was in Yamusukoro, which is like one of the second largest cities in Côte d'Ivoire, known for uh, the Basilica, like the one in Rome. There's like a replica of that in, in Yamusukoro. was built by uh, their, their first president. So I, I spent three months there with the church there to encourage a young 
church that was mainly campus ministry because they have some great schools there and they have some engineers, engineering students. So it's mainly like a 80, 90% campus church. And so spent three months with them. And during that time, one of my routines, that's something you mentioned in one of your, one of my routines is getting up early in the morning back then, trying to imitate Jesus as a single man, getting out of the house, going to solitary place to pray. And so this morning I got up, got on my bike, and I was riding out of town kind of to a quiet place to go and pray. And it was really early. It was pretty early. It was before 5 a.m. And so uh, somewhere between 4 and 5. And all of a sudden, I noticed there was a, a search light coming after me. As I'm riding on the bike, <laughs> the search light was following me. And it was from a very far distance. And so it hit me that these were actually the military guys who kind of like supervise at night against the rebels and all of that. So it must have been really stupid of me to have done that that early. <laughs> but that's what happened. And so they were actually following me with a search. They could have just shot me directly. Wow. And so once I realized what I was faced with, I remember out of sheer fear, I jumped off my bike. I mean, you, you gain extra energy or power or whatever you call it. I, I picked up the bike with just one hand and ran off. I, 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 so there, there was a there was a like a hill close by. I ran to the hill and kind of like hid behind it to kind of escape the searchlight. But the point is, I was completely at their mercy, mm. and they could have shot me that night. Wow. So I experienced. A bit of what David would have experienced, maybe when Saul was chasing him, it fell that way to me. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. What What does your morning routine look like? I, in reading your biography, I was like, this guy's busy. I mean, he's really swamped. And I think this is a challenge for everybody. But for those who are younger, trying to develop a, a good morning routine is very important. But also for those who are, already have a full-time job, it's hard to find time with kids and family. And it, it's like, man, I'd love to do what he's doing, but you know, you don't know my time and my schedule. What does your morning routine look like? How do you grow in the morning? Thanks for sharing that. So as a single man, it was pretty obvious. It was pretty like what I just, I just mentioned the experience I had where I would dedicate my whole morning to prayer, to study. And, and I love, outdoors. I love nature. So I had the, the luxury of doing a lot of that. In the Ivory Coast, in Bamenda, there were lots of hills. In fact, there's a hill till date. When the church that calls that hill, Gilbert's Hill, because I kind of identified it and it, it, it would take me about 40 minutes to one hour to walk and to the bottom of the hill and climb up. So it was kind of like a combination of a walk, exercise, and then prayer. Uh, so I think I really enjoyed those years as a single person. And, and that's the beauty of, of, of being a single, as Paul says. And, and each time we get the opportunity to talk to singles, we do encourage my wife and I to make the best of those years and build a great relationship with God. You will need it in your later years to have those great memories with God. Um, I remember taking out a golf course. A golf course wasn't very far from where I lived in Ivory Coast at some point. And often during the day, it was so free. 
you really find a human being on it. And I found a way to get into the golf course and I had my spots where I would just go and sit there and it's quiet and there's nature and just spend great time with God. So that's for the single part of my life. When I now got married and it was combined with the corporate life of getting up early in a city like Lagos and my wife and I, ever since we got married, my wife's alarm clock has always rang at 4 a.m. in the morning. Oh, my so gosh. So I'm, I'm lucky that we both are morning persons, both of us. We both. I mean, I was delighted when I discovered that she's also a morning person. So <laughs> we don't have to struggle about that. <laughs> so, I mean, she even challenges me in that area. So, so it's always rang at 4 a.m. This morning it rang at 4 a.m. And so uh, before we got married, it rings at 4 a.m. And because of Lagos traffic, the priority is, uh, can you get as you know, get out of the home and beat traffic as early as you can? So, uh, in in that mode, as a as a young married person, I'll say a quick prayer. But the priority is get ready quickly, jump into the car and beat traffic. So we'll drive to my office. My uh, we get to my where I work before she gets to her office. So we'll drive to my office. It was pretty secure park in front of the office and sit in the car for the next. So we leave home like maybe 15 minutes past five or something like that. We'll get to my office before 6 a.m. And uh, so quarter to six, and we'll sit there in, in, in the car till like 7.30 or something because she has a meeting in her office at eight o'clock. So for the next 90 minutes about that, we're sitting in the car Generally, during the drive, she she loves singing. She's a part of the choir. We'll be playing <laughs> some of our favorite worship songs uh, in the choir. We're always learning a new song at some point in time. So we have a lot of songs we've learned over the years together. That's what we'll do generally during the drive. Or we'll listen to a podcast. We love subscribing to Douglas Jacobi's uh, a New Year series be it on the book of Psalms, be it on the book of Romans. So we always have something we're listening to while we're driving, generally. And then when we get there, it's more of time for us to discuss and share uh, what, what we've listened to or, or, or maybe read some scriptures together and have a, a, com a quiet time together and end up praying before she leaves for her office. So that was our typical routine for five years of me having that corporate job in that particular office. And then, and I'll switch to becoming the flexible tent-making guy after I lost my job. And so we had to now develop a new routine. She kept her routine. So I will still get up with her early in the morning as she's getting set. Uh, some days she will go off alone. Some days I will drive out with her. Uh, now that we have a kid, uh, uh, we, we've had to readjust. We've had to really readjust. I still do get up quite early. Like if it's 4 a.m., generally our son is still asleep. So while she's getting ready, uh, now with the pandemic, she goes out like twice a week. She went out today. Uh, so while she's getting ready to leave, at that 4 a.m., I'm spending some good quiet time in prayer and study. And then when she's now ready to go, we have a a prayer time together mm. before she leaves the house. So we've had to adjust. Uh, I, I do spend, uh, during the pandemic, I've spent quite some late nights studying 
or working on some assignments with the master's program. And so on, during times like that, the morning routine has to adjust. But right. generally, one thing that is constant is that that clock will ring at 4 a.m. Uh, you're either getting up, which is most of the time. And the weekends, it actually rings at 5 a.m. So that has been a constant. You, so you get what to we do all the activities. You, you, you go easy on yourself and get to sleep in until 5 a.m. On, on the weekends. Just take it easy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I, exactly. Agree, I agree with you. I mean, if there's like one thing that makes the, the biggest difference is, is getting up early where you've got the time and the flexibility in the morning. So that, that's great. Thank you. Now, let's talk a little bit about this pandemic. I'm sure you've been impacted. How can small or underfunded churches use technology to grow during the same pandemic? Like, what advice would you give people who are like smaller churches or just going, man, how, uh, this, is, this is not like it's been. This is so different. Any advice? Yeah, I think what really helped me, I mean, because we are all learning in the midst of it all. So what helped me early on, I remember actually, actually had to rush back home from the U.S. I always got caught up because I came for the teachers conference in San Antonio. And I just got back. I had to quarantine myself away from my family uh, before they could join me. So what, what really helped me early on was I was lucky to subscribe and join uh, a conference that was done online called the Quarantine Church Conference. And, 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 and they really shared some really basic tools of, of how you can operate online. And interestingly, I have moved a lot of my teaching, which will have been physical travel like usual. I've been able to move a lot of that online. So within, within the past three months, it's been crazy how many churches have been able to engage with within Africa and even outside Africa, some in the U.S., uh, four in Europe, uh, just simply by learning to use the online tool. So what I will say for small churches is the first thought that comes to mind is um, talking about flexibility and also talking about resources. Uh, uh, it, I think it's much cheaper to invest in how to do online like right now we do about our, our professional bible talk that my wife and i uh, you know a part of uh, we've been leading that for a number of years we now do it online we do it on, on mondays every two weeks it was every week during the real lockdown now it's every other week um of course church services have been online uh engaging with friends has been online what i'll say is i think a lot of resources go often into renting and, 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 and you know, physical infrastructure. Uh, and I think also even with meetings, to be honest with you, um, that's one of the things I was even encouraging my wife with her job, is there's some meetings that you don't really need to go physically. There's some meetings that can actually be done on Zoom, like we're having a Zoom session now. So what I would really advise is for smaller churches is to sift through and see what is it that can, you know, that really absolutely needs the physical uh, meeting. And what is it that we can actually do online? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, and I don't need to tell you guys this, but in our own part of the world, uh, we are not very time conscious. We are more into relationships than time management. And so in our part of the world, one of the things I champion here is, you know, if we're going to have a Zoom meeting, a church meeting, 
Can we have an agenda? Can we know when it starts, when it ends? So we at least have some structure to read. The Bible talk we do for professionals, we call it a one hour challenge. And so we do everything to make sure it stays within that hour, some level of discipline. But it, what I was mainly saying is sifting between uh, to knowing what needs physical uh, meetings and what is it that we can actually do mm -hmm. online and save time. And I know you did mention smaller churches, but even in bigger churches now, mm -hmm. we have to operate as small groups right. within the big church. Right. And, and so there's a lot of time saving uh, that we can achieve in doing a lot of things online. Right. I mean, drive, so driving and transportation, it's just a huge, huge time saver. And also I've, I've seen even on midweeks, uh, higher participation in some ways because it's it's easier for people to get there and also for people with kids. It's just, uh, it has some benefits. Well, I want to go ahead and wrap this up. I know I've taken a lot of your time. What advice, Gilbert, would you give to a person who really wants to make their life count, who's sitting there listening, going, man, I want to make a difference. I, I really, I don't want to have any regrets in this life. I want to do as much as I can for God. What advice would you give them? Uh, before I jump on that, can I just mention one or two thoughts on the online? Go thing ahead, we just please. About? Sure. So, so the two thoughts uh, are: there's an incredible audience out there online that we can reach out to in terms of church growth, and I really see this season, even for us with our Bible talk and effort, I see this season as a time where we can really sow a lot of seeds in people's hearts. People ask a lot of questions about God, about him. I just saw a new book that came out by one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, a book on God and the pandemic. And so there's so much that this season is raising up in terms of questions about God. And so we can sow a lot of seeds in people's hearts that I believe there will be a harvest in due time. Uh, maybe it might be challenging because of the limited or the physical distancing to harvest as much as we would like to but we can really take advantage of this time to sow a lot of seeds, knowing that there's an incredible uh, uh, missionary field out there available to us online that you will reach out to online and not be able to reach out to something you will not be able to do physically if we, if we continue with the normal physical meeting. So there's just an incredible opportunity out there. That, just a thought I wanted to, 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 to drop there before I now land on the last question. I, I love that question because for me personally, cancer taught me some very, uh, some life lessons. So the first one was the, how, how short life can be, mm. the brevity of life. I mean, I think Psalm 90 verse 12 captures it really well, you know, teach us to number our days so we can gain a heart of wisdom. And so learning about how short life is, I was 20 when I got diagnosed with cancer, I turned 21 in hospital. It taught me that it can end at any time. Mm. I was at the prime of life mm. and, and my life could have just ended abruptly. Mm. And so it taught me to appreciate life, to appreciate every day is a gift. It's a gift to be grateful for and at the same time, it's a gift to be maximized, make, mm -hmm. make the best of every opportunity, as Ephesians would put it. And so uh, appreciating life has been one of the things that has led to me living 
if you want to call it a purpose-driven life, it did awaken in me a desire to want to have a purpose. Mm. So why am I here? Mm. For me specifically, why did God save me of cancer? And, and, and we all have our stories. We all have stories of near-death experiences, turning points where we're really wondering, what is this life about? Mm. And, we, and we're, we're thinking about, why am I here? So for me personally, uh, the combination of the, how short life is, James talks about that, our life is a mist, mm -hmm. and, and just being able to appreciate how short life can be, mm. and from there, gain the wisdom of maximizing time. So you mentioned me having a really busy schedule. It might not always feel that way because I'm more driven by purpose than activity. But somebody who is watching, and of course, I do get to a point where I feel like, man, I got quite a bit in my hands here. But it's more of, there's just a drive to want to make an impact. Cancer shifted me from just uh, success, achievement, be it academic, be it professional, be it whatever achievement, personal. I shifted from there to wanting to really make an impact in terms of relationship, relationship with God and translating that into relationship impacting people's lives. So those are the few thoughts I'd like to share about that. Yeah. It's, it's such an inspiring story when, when I think about you overcoming cancer and then using your life to serve God and using all your talents, your gifts, your gift for language to serve in, in various countries. Thank you so much for your time, Gilbert. I really appreciate it. It's been such an honor, Rob. It's been an honor. Thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah, thank you. And I want to thank you for listening today to the Rob Skinner podcast. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. My goal is to inspire you every time to make this life count, to live a no regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed the program today, I'd like to ask you to share, describe, and to share this with your friends. Let people know about it. Let them be encouraged by people who are making a difference with their lives. Have a great day and make this life count.